Welcome to episode 10 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and in celebration of the podcast hitting double digit episodes, we'll announce Theo first this week. How are you doing down there in Sydney, Theo? Oh, fantastic, mate. It's the sun's shining, the birds are singing, and um, everything's going fantastically. It's been raining nonstop here, so not quite the same as you, huh? (laughs) Uh, And of course, from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. How are you, Anthony? Oh, we're looking forward to the first cold front of the year. It might actually get down to 70 degrees. Oh, I don't want to hear it. What's that in Celsius, Mike? 70? It's like 25, right? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Uh, As always, the call lines are open and anyone can join in the discussion. I post the Zoom link for the upcoming show on MikeEckman.com, on our Camerosity podcast Facebook page, and on a variety of film photography-related Facebook groups. So if you want to join in the discussion, be sure to look for it. Uh, we had some great feedback from last week. Uh, Nick Lyle was thankful for our discussion on the Paraflex, saying it reminded him of the Azahi Flex waist-level design, and he wonders how a Periscope-style format might work on a large-format camera. Uh, Nigel Haycock was excited to hear that I got my hands on the Vito 3, and, it's, and is ex- excited to hear more about that one. Uh, and Hong Jun Lee praised Episode 9, saying he would like to hear more discussion about historical firsts. Uh, anything's on the table, Hong. You should join us. Um, we already have our first guest. Uh, looks like Michael Gossett is joining us. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Hello. <laughs> I kind of got into photography about seven years ago. I blamed my brother. And uh, at the time, we were filming YouTube videos. And um, we had an old, my mom's old Canon, I think it was a T70, one of those old FD mounts. And we started adapting the lenses after that. But we played around with film occasionally. I'm more of a digital shooter mostly, but... Occasionally, I'll get some film out to shoot. <laughs> what do you shoot when you shoot film? Well, I live in a very rural area, and there's nowhere local that processes. And um, mailing it out is just so much of a hassle that we just shoot cheap stuff and see what happens. That's cool. Yeah, there's so nothing wrong with cheap stuff. Mostly, yeah. It's basically cheap Fuji or cheap Kodak, the bare minimum. I, I occasionally will buy an expensive roll, but my the processors around here are real bad. <laughs> Well, we could probably have some discussion on developing yourself. That's a topic that comes up frequently. Uh, You know, I mean, I I was in that boat, too, where I thought, you know, I couldn't do it myself. I didn't want to learn. It seemed way too complicated. So I just paid someone else to do it. And um, while there are certainly some great mail order labs, um, you know, it can get pricey. You know, every time you're sending out a roll and paying 10, 12 bucks a roll plus shipping and, you know, there and back and such like that. Um, but we also have uh, another guest. Um, the open source concept suggests that anybody can join. And I already mentioned his name, but I had no idea he was going to be here. Uh, looks like Nick Lyle just joined us. Hey, Nick. Hi there. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's like Rumpelstiltskin. Just say yeah. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Right. There you go. It's that season anyway. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, you had made a comment about liking the Paraflex discussion. Um, and you, you, you waxed poetic about possibly doing that on a large format camera. Is that something you've actually tried or you just, no, I've been drawing pictures though, because I like the idea of getting a wide angle lens really close to the film as it needs to be with large format and still being able to peek through the lens to focus just for like for a camera you'd use quickly for a camera you'd be in a hurry with. I mean, otherwise, yeah, you can get out the, you know, the dark cloth and the, and look through the ground glass and do everything the normal way. But if you're running around kind of, you know, shooting fast, 
the idea of being able to peek through so you get you don't get the full view you just get enough to focus yeah. by using a little periscope instead of the full mirror well and what's so great about the pair the paraflex is it being a 35 millimeter camera you get the benefit of a, of a reflex without a mirror box you know right. granted it, it only lets you see the center like a center square of the image sure. but really that's no different than looking at ground glass with like a center split right. image focusator a microprism circle so the the amount of area on the paraflex that you're using to focus on is a, is no different than the focus aids that are on most early slrs and if you look at cameras like uh the zeiss contaflex where um and the, um, the Leica Flex is the same way where the, the ground glass you can't focus on it's always bright you can right. only focus in the center so it really it's it's got all the advantages and almost none of the disadvantages and but with you know 35 millimeter there's all these retrofocus lenses around but with large format you don't have that so yeah. the only way you're going to use wide uh wide angle lenses and focus through the lens you know kind of with a peekaboo viewfinder is to use something like a paraflex design. And I thought yeah. of that a long time ago. I didn't know they'd already made it, but they always have every invention <laughs> I ever come up with in photography was done a hundred years ago, you know, so that's just how it is. Uh, Michael. So you joined, um, you said that you are, are thinking of developing, sending out your film for developing, right? That's what I'm thinking about doing. Cause there's aren't, any, there aren't any good labs around here and okay. I don't shoot it enough to really, do a whole lot. If I do start, I'm going to start with black and white because they say that's easier. But um, yeah. yeah, my last yeah. film adventure didn't go very well, but it might have been the camera's fault. It was a retina and <laughs> I got one frame out of it and that was all. <laughs> one frame at all or one good frame? I got one good frame. And then okay. it, I, I think the film advance, it didn't advance and I got like five images all on one jumbled <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> it was yeah. interesting, but yeah. Yeah. You know, vetting. Uh, I love the retina lenses though. So yeah. Uh, vetting a camera is, is, is key. Um, you would think, you know, I mean, I've reviewed over 320 cameras. I've shot more than that. I'll tell you, man, you never remember to do it every time. I, I can't tell you how many times I have failures where it's like, crap, I thought I checked that already. And, and you just don't. So uh, you know, it, it sounds like you're still at the very beginning of your journey. You know, just don't get discouraged. Um, you commented about liking the lenses and, you know, retina has always had great lenses. So if assuming that camera doesn't have any mechanical problems um, and it's just getting familiar with it, I, I encourage you to keep trying because you, you will be rewarded with some nice images. Which one is it's it? It's the retina reflex for... Okay. And it's got that little weird clicker at the bottom for keeping track of your shots. That threw me for a loop too. Yeah. You have to, you have to watch that because if you, uh, if you don't have the frame counter set properly, it'll stop you when you get to zero, regardless of how much film you have uh, left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the retinas is that the more advanced ones are actually more trouble. I I'm happy with an earlier model, a retina too, but as they got more and more complex, there were more and more things to go wrong. I actually really like the original Retina Reflex. It's just called the Retina Reflex. It's the one yeah, where... I'm thinking about getting one of the earlier ones. Where re yeah, Retina's written at like an angle. And what's cool about that one is it's a lot simpler of a design. Um, I don't have any statistical evidence of this, but it seems like it should break less. But what's really cool about it is that's the only of the Retina SLRs that can use the interchangeable lenses from the retina th two and three C 
rangefinder. So you won't see too many cameras where you can share a lens between a rangefinder and an SLR, but only the original retina reflex can do that. Whereas the later retinas starting with the S and then the three and the four, they use what's called the DKL mount, which um, a lot of companies actually use. And, and they're, they're great lenses, mm -hmm. but they're, they're not, you can't mount them at anything other than those cameras. Do they adapt very easily for digital cameras? Um, kind of. You, you can get, like, I have a DKL to X mount uh, adapter for my Fuji. Um, but something I've heard is really common with them is they almost never focus to minimum focus correctly because the DKL mount, in fact, they have one right in front of me. I swear <laughs> I don't have this stuff page. Uh, Anthony, Anthony will, can vouch for me. We were talking about this before the show started. You know, for those of you listening, you won't be able to see this, but on a DKL mount, there's no ring for aperture. So if you think of like the Nikon F, mm. the, the later G lenses, you can't, there's no control for aperture. On the, the, the retina reflexes, your, your aperture control is in the camera itself. And that's, that's how all DKL mount lenses are. So the Footlander, uh, Bessematic, right? That's what it's called. Um, yeah. A couple other companies made them. Um, Ultramatic. Um, yeah, the ultramatic. So you change your, your, your diaphragm within the camera body itself, not the lens. So when, when you take the lens off, it's, it just stops down to the smallest setting and you need some additional piece to be able to control that. So when these get adapted, the adapter has to have that piece. In fact, some, some of them, what the companies did was they modified, they like disassembled an existing mount and took pieces of it and turned it into the adapter. And I think that that affects the flange distance a little bit and it throws, so you can get infinity. You have the opposite problem. You do most of the time when you switch lenses, some lenses won't reach infinity. Well, I found that with the DKL mounts, a lot of times you can't hit the minimum focus. So like mm. you can only do like six Fine. feet and away and then they focus beyond infinity. But otherwise, you know, these lenses always have great optics. So it, as long as you're willing to fork over a little bit more for the adapter, because they're a bit more complicated, because um, like I said, they need to be able to control the uh, the diaphragm um, and losing minimum focus. And for all I know, maybe there are some other really expensive ones that, that can accommodate that. I don't know. I don't typically once I get an adapter, I don't keep buying more of the same kind. But, you know, you do get the benefit of the excellent quality those lenses can have because they're pretty much all good. Like, I, I don't even know that I've seen a DKL mount lens that wasn't great. It's, it's interesting you, met the, you mentioned the adapter for the Nikon Fs because I, I did actually end up with an adapter for the G mount lenses and the G lenses and did stick an AIS lens on it. And it wasn't a great experience because I didn't realize I'd done it. And I couldn't figure yeah. out why I couldn't move the aperture around. It was actually quite a surreal experience thinking the whole thing had locked up. But it yeah. ended up... A, and the problem with the, the aperture controls is they're not your usual 2.8s for 5.6, et cetera. They're marked as one, two, three, right. four. Five. Some of them don't even mark them at yeah. all. You just arbitrarily yeah. open and close the diaphragm and just guess what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can always look at it, you know. <laughs> yeah, get out, get out a micrometer and start measuring what it is. Speak to something that, that, that Nick had said earlier. It's, I've got a personal history with these retina reflexes. My, when I was born, my dad bought a retina reflex three to take my first baby pictures. And when I turned 16, he handed me the camera and said, this one's yours now. So I, I, that's the camera I learned to shoot. And I sort of just threw it in the, you know, 
by the time I got my Nikon FM2, I just sort of threw the retina reflex in the drawer and forgot about it. And it was about four years ago, uh, maybe five years ago, I, I pulled it out. And I mean, the thing hadn't been used in a while. And uh, it was a mess. It wouldn't work. I was getting like very intermittent frames. And I happened to be in Berlin at a conference. And I went to a, a shop that was doing repair of vintage cameras. And they had this amazing wall mount of a Retina 3 that had been disassembled and every part splayed out on a board. Uh, <laughs> and it's mind boggling. I asked <laughs> right. them, I was like, you know, if I send you back my Retina 3 that was my dad's, can you fix this camera? And the guy's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, the last guy in Berlin that was repairing the retina reflexes, he uh, he retired and he took his last one and that's it up on the wall. And uh, nobody in Berlin can repair a retina three. Right. Uh, so I ended up sending it down to Chris Sherlock down in New Zealand. You know, it, it was like a, a very sort of a sentimental thing to send it in to get it fixed. And it's back now. It's working like brand new, but it's like that thing is so Rube Goldberg. You know, it's got like fishing line that connects these yeah. these uh, uh, dials to change the aperture from the wrong side of the camera, and it goes through a series of pulleys and and you know moves the. It's just like you can you actually feel the the tension of these the silk threads as they're moving. Um, but I mean, they're th those. You know, we, I was talking to Mike earlier about these lenses, the Xenon. 519 is just a stunning lens. I mean, I, and I've got the Kurtagon and I've got, I probably have five lenses for mine. And every time I shoot that camera, you know, they've got a horrible reputation for being fussy and being uh, just, just difficult and, and unreliable. But man, if they're firing on all cylinders, um, it's really was like the last great camera to have a Kodak name on it. The, um, what kind of lenses did they use? generally have was it schneider mostly schneider the okay. ones that are typically exported to the united states will almost always have schneider a lot of them that are sold in europe will have rodenstock mm. um I, I don't know if that, that i know that applies to the rangefinders. i'm not 100 percent sure on the slrs but i do know that if you see a rodenstock lens retina it's almost always a european spec i i want to suddenly change direction and tell michael gossett that you know, you should get a simple camera that works really well, but while you're getting into figuring out what who can develop film and all that, because there's no point in throwing a curveball at yourself by using a camera that is questionable. Like, pick some stupidly reliable thing, like, you know, a Minolta X370 or something that costs $15 one. and works fine. And, you know, use that until you under that, but understand which film, you know, your local developer can actually handle or whatever you know there's nothing wrong with cheap kodak and fuji that's actually great film it's yeah. it's not as forgiving or amazing maybe as portrait but it's still really good and if you just stick with one brand of film and one camera for a while you know you'll sort out that stuff pretty quick yeah eliminating variables definitely helps in this hobby because there's already so many you yeah. know father yeah. time being the, the worst <laughs> of them all <laughs> That, that's kind of interesting. I had a Pentax K1000, but I, I sold it because one of the interesting things where I live is I get lots of like flea markets and stuff and people have no idea what they have. And uh, so I got a Pentax K1000 for dirt cheap and it was perfect. And I shot some film with it, but um, 
at the time that's when i went to go buy my sony a7 and so i went and traded it in and i forgot to take the film out <laughs> oh, <geez>. oh no! <laughs> i'm like oh no i lost all that but um that is interesting to try to limit the variables since i'm kind of new with film um yeah. i bought yeah. two of the canon rebel just the film ones and they're so simple <laughs> that, so, that's not a bad option actually that's that's yeah. actually really good they're reliable they'll, they'll give you consistent results their metering's good. As much as it pains me to say, being a Nikon person, but Canon Rebels are actually quite. A- <laughs> well, what's what's great, and I've said this a million times, but what's great about shooting film is that there's so many different ways to do it, and none of them are wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you just want the experience of shooting film, and that's it. Like you don't care about the history, you don't care about the quirky cameras or, or different type of user interface. Like you can get a Canon Rebel, like you said, you can get a Nikon, you know, N80. Uh, you know, any of the millions of Minolta SLRs that were made and load in some film and just shoot 24 or 36 exposures, develop them and, and, and marvel at the look of them, you know, but maybe you're more into the tactile, you know, that it, it excites me to hold, you know, a heavy, you know, mechanical camera on here, you know, the the slow speed train whirring and just all the different noises that cameras make and, you know, the different ways things could be done. You know, some people really like medium format, you know, you get the larger negative, you know, but there's so many different ways to do it. Pinhole cameras, you know, you want to get the the crazy Lomo, you know, distorted this and expired film with goofy colors. And it's just so much fun. I'm sure there's always going to be that one naysayer, but for the most part, Everybody I've ever encountered in this hobby, you know, even if they have a different way of doing it, is just supportive. So, you know, whether you like to keep shooting the Rebel, um, the Retina is a great camera, but I do agree with Nick. You know, as a beginner, you're stacking the odds against you with a camera like that. If you can find more K1000s, the great thing about them is they sell for really high prices. So you could use them as fodder to help fund something more expensive. (laughs) Yeah, I just sold mine. I had a $15 flea market k1000 in it it had matured in value (laughs) and so away it went because you know it's kind of a boring camera to use so let me say a word in in defense of not developing your own film Uh, and this is coming from a person who is like i live in with my hands in developer and i'm developing film probably four to five days a week but you know when i got back into film I was lucky enough to to meet up with Carl from the Classic Lens podcast. He turns out that he uh, was hanging out at my cafe and taking pictures, uh, you know, with me in the background without me realizing it until <laughs> I finally saw his Instagram feed. And uh, Carl and I would shoot probably once or twice a week for a couple of years. And I could not convince Carl to develop a roll of film. Uh, you know, here was a guy who was beloved around the world who hosted the classic lens podcast who was shooting film cameras all the time. And he never once developed a role. And I'd invite him uh, to, you know, I'd invite him over to teach him. You know, I was going to teach him Kaffenol, uh, and he just would look at me and he's like, Anthony, I've got a lab that's in Alabama. That's a cheap lab that does a fantastic job. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to develop my own film? And he yeah, was, and he was he was also a professor busy trying to save the Everglades, so he yeah. had a lot on his plate, you know. He was, but he <laughs> he was so happy to have never developed a role of film. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with 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 you know getting a good lab to take care of you. Um, yeah. sometimes that's, that's what that's what I've been doing, and it's it's just if you can, it's like if you have to shoot less, 
but pay more attention to what you're doing, then that's what you do. You know, like maybe you can't spray out as many rolls if you have to pay the money, but you also have more time. For me, you know, I actually enjoy the developing part, but what comes after that is my least favorite part, which is the scanning. We've talked about this in previous episodes, whether a flatbed or uh, yeah, flatbed scanner, uh, digitizer, whatever method you use, they're all a pain in the butt. Um, If there was a way I could develop my own film and then just the, the images magically appear on the computer, that would be the ideal situation. But when you, when you develop your own film, you got to deal with not only scanning and getting it on the computer, but then. But then what to do with the piles of film, you know, after you're done with it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So unfortunately I try and save money by develop only uncut. And then I have to deal with the scanning (laughs) and you're right. It takes much more time than any other rest of it. And it's sometimes it fails, but it's sort of like, that's that extra thing. If you have everything scanned, you're paying for a whole bunch of pictures you don't necessarily even want. So doing it yourself, at least you can narrow it down to the ones that you think are reasonably yeah, good. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could stop spending money on lenses, I might have more money to sign up for a film subscription or something. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So have you had just, any recent pickups, Mike? Uh, yeah, pretty good one. Um, I got the Nikon 180, the EDAIS version. Okay. And, um, I really like it because... Wow. Uh, when I go out hiking a lot, I live in an area with lots of hiking trails and love to do that. Um, sometimes I want a long telephoto and I don't want to take my Canon 300 millimeter L with me. And so I put it on micro four thirds camera, just have it on the side and take my Sony with wide angles and mm-hmm. it works really well. Yeah. That's a great lens. I mean, it's, I think it's F28, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get, you get some decent speed out of it. Um, it's a prime. So it's incredibly sharp and, you know, uh, Nikon, um made that lens shoot i think since the 70s you know i mean the the ed is is a later version but you know that general format formula they they made for quite a while they may even still make it i'm not even sure i think they made it up to 2005 or 2006 yeah but it was definitely one of their longer ones yeah that's some something i do a lot too is i'll carry a digital camera to to, in order to prevent myself from shooting too much film. So when I have the urge to take too many pictures, I'll use digital. And then when I really realize, oh, that's the one I want, then I'll bring out the film camera. And that also cuts down on the cost of processing. So since we talked to Mike about his recent pickup, we usually do this at the end. I want to share mine. This was, uh, I, I mentioned when I visited uh, my camera collector friend a couple episodes back, I, I, the one camera I wanted to take home with me was a, a Contax one. And uh, I, I ended up having to get one of my own. Um, but uh, this one came in the most beautiful case. The leather is in great shape. It's got a gorgeous patina. It's still supple. You know, I mean, the, the straps aren't cracking. I was showing this to Anthony before the show started. Uh, the black paint is still very shiny. The lens, it's, it, it has the Tessar. So it's the F2.8 lens. And a lot of people, when you see these, they usually have the sonars on them. Um, but I actually like the look of the Tessar better on these. It just, it looks different than, than the other lenses of the era. Um, we'll have a picture of it up on uh, the, the podcast page after the show's over with. But I, I haven't yet shot it, but just handling it, the look of it, the way the controls feel, I can already say that I like this better than any of the um, contacts two, three, or, you know, even the Kievs. Um, and those are great cameras too, but this is just cool. This is really, actually, really cool. 
I'm really with you on that. I think the best of the Tessar formulas actually, to me, are better than the sonars. And the Tessars were just so common, and there were lots of mediocre ones that people like don't appreciate how good the really good ones like the color scope ours are, you know, that they're the Toyota pickup truck of the, of the lens world. You know, it's like what you see in Africa. It's what you see, you know, in difficult situations and far off places because they work and they're good. But the best of them are also really nice. Absolutely. And they, and they actually look like they have a look to them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people talk about all these lenses that have these the look, you know, and I, I, I can't see it in a lot of lenses. Like, you know, you have this like sliding scale of like really shitty, you know, meniscus <laughs> lenses all the way to like a planar, right? And the, the, to me, the Tessars in that middle area where you can actually still see the difference, but the images still look great, you know, whereas the sonars, in my opinion, they just, they look kind of generic. I mean, they're, they're good images. You're going to get good sharpness, you know, for the later coded ones, you're going to get great colors out of them, but you know, sometimes, sometimes too good is, is, it's boring. And, and I like Tessars for that reason that they, they actually have a look to them. I, I think with sonars is it that they're more limited, that they are fantastic in certain circumstances and then a little bit boring in other circumstances where a great Tessar is almost never fails. You know, that's just my opinion, but. Yeah. Sorry about that guys. My connection seems to be a bit flaky today, but um, I, I can sympathize with you, Anthony, because I, I took out the, the Bush Pressman D for um, shooting uh, this weekend, which was, uh, which was a bit of an experience getting back into four by five and even just loading the actual film holders to, to actually shoot four by five. Yeah, I think my son learned a few new swear words as I'm in there with a dark bag <laughs> trying to get the film in and the fingerprints are going all over it. And he's 16 and he's probably heard all the swear words. <laughs> well, there is there's yet another way to go, which I have not tried myself, but I've been watching what Ethan Moses is doing. He's made these new film holders, 4x5, 8x10, and what's the big one? Like 24 by it's the huge, gigantic. These are film holders. You load the film, and he's using color paper, but it could be either way. You develop it in the film holder. So the film holder wow. is watertight and has a place to a light tight port to pour the chemicals in. And he's developing the, in his case, he's doing these color positives where you get a color positive in one shot. But you could do the same thing with color film. You develop it right in the holder. Uh, and you probably need a couple of them so you can dry one out while you're, you know, getting the other one uh, in the camera. It's a slow process, but it's one less step. You, you don't have to get the film out and then into the <laughs> into the holder. I don't know. That's another way to go. He's uh, making them. They're laser cut parts that are, you know, glued together, so they're uh, they're pretty precise. Well, well Michael. Really cool. Michael, hopefully, you know, I don't know how much you're going to learn from us here, but hopefully if there's one takeaway here, it's that we don't all know what we're doing either. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You'll you'll never stop learning. And probably four by five is not a good place to start learning. (laughs) Well, I've toyed around with the idea of putting a medium format kit together, because if I'm going to shoot film, I want it to be larger than 35 millimeter. Yeah, I love 120, and you don't have. There is actually nothing much to it. You can get a cheap folding camera that will make excellent pictures, and there's there's no kit. It's just one object, and away you go. 
Yeah, one of the earlier podcasts, Anthony, you asked me, like, what would be my recommendation for a beginner wanting to get into medium format? And, you know, everybody jumps to TLRs and such like that. And I'd say, like, if you're just looking for an economical entry point, you know, get something like an Ansco SpeedX. Yep. Um, there's so many really, really good folding six by six cameras that have so little value, have so little value on eBay. You could pick them up for 10, sometimes 20 bucks. Um, the Ansco ones generally do a pretty good job um, of not being rotted out. You know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Kodak stuff, you know, can, can tend to be rotted out, but I've had pretty good luck with Ansco and Agfa folders and, and they'll get you a, yeah, he's um, Nick's holding up. Looks <laughs> like a speed X there. Um, that camera you can probably find on eBay for 20 bucks. Um, it's going to have probably a basic triplet, but it's going to shoot really nice images that are going to give you some character. Um, so in any, that way you can decide if medium format, something you want to play around with more. And if you end up really liking the larger negative switch to a TLR or, or, or something, you know, I mean, people, always, everybody wants a Hasselblad, but, you know, I, I don't even, this is a loner. Yeah, except Anthony. Um, <laughs> they're expensive. <laughs> I've got my eyes on a Bronica, I think, and I'm just trying to decide which ones and just maybe piecemealing one, you know, together. Well, I tell you, I found a, uh, a Zeiss um, Netar from the 1950s. It's a red flag Netar. I was the only bidder on it at $10 on eBay opening bid yeah. with shipping. It was like $14. The Netars are great. And it yep. looks, it looks brand new. I swear to God, it looks like it's never been used. I think it's got the Novar lens on it, which is, is that's a triplet, right, Mike? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it shoots six by nine. It is luscious. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but you put a Novar on a six by nine negative and you know that's impressive it's it does a beautiful image you can get into you know six by nine negatives for for under fifteen dollars um uh, theo's pulling out his netar yep that's a bessa oh it's a bessa Fultlander bessa yeah the, the Fultlanders are nice they're a little more expensive though um the netars are super economical uh, super i did economical. i did a review of the 515 which is, you know, they don't use the term half frame, but it's half of six by nine. So four and a half by six, you get 16 images a roll, um, which is nice because like it kind of gives you that familiarity of landscape orientation, like on a 35 millimeter camera. Plus you're shooting medium format and still getting 16 images a roll. You know, six by six, of course, gives you 12, uh, six by nine, you get eight a roll, Um but there's, there are a lot of really economical choices to get you into it. And, and you, you will fall in love with the resolution um, of the, of the, the larger format. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's why I was pulling that out. Sorry. I was letting you finish off there, uh, Anthony, but um, the Besso one, that's another six by nine. It's, it's just absolutely superb. I mean, the results I've gotten out of this and it's a nice simple kit folds down flat mm -hmm. Um yeah, the lens is superb. You've got to get used to scale focusing on this one. This is the best one. But um, the 6 by 9 negatives I got out of it were just absolutely – I fell in love with, and it's one of my favorite cameras. And I mean, it, if you can scale focus uh, a Rolly 35, you can scale focus that. Exactly. Um, and also an external rangefinder. I mean, you can pick them up for 15 bucks, and they're super helpful. Michael, have you ever shot a camera at the scale focus where there's no rangefinder or no through-the-lens I don't think so. Most of my film stuff's been SLRs, and um, I've got some rangefinders, but I haven't really shot with them yet. <laughs> okay. So. 
Yeah, range finders are very easy to do. It's just a different way. Um, if you get a good range finder with a nice contrasty patch, I, you'll find that you really like them. Um, I have terrible vision, and on some SLRs, especially with slower lenses, I actually find range finders to be easier in certain situations than SLRs because you could, in low light, if you can even find a speck of light somewhere, you can focus on the light and boom, you know, you know, the rest of your image is going to be in focus. Whereas sometimes with an SLR in low light, especially when you're using older cameras, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but scale focus, I'll be honest with you, scale focus sounds intimidating. There's so many things about this hobby that sound intimidating, but once you do them, they're really not that bad. You know, Anthony was talking about the Rolly 35, which that's the only way to focus it. And I tell you what, the very first time I ever shot a Rolly 35, 24 out of 24 images were properly in focus. And you're just guess focusing, which sounds hard, but it really isn't. And, you know, it's once you open your mind to it, uh, you'll find that it's not that hard to do. Yeah, I really like the idea of shooting a, like a wider format, but in um, more of a landscape orientation like that. I guess I I think part of the weird thing with me is being a little bit younger. I remember the tail end of the film days in the 90s, being a child growing up then. But, um, you know, we put the film in the camera and hear the automatic rewinding thing. I guess that's why I leaned over the, towards the Rebels. It's kind of nostalgic to put film in and hear that sound, which is. So I, I guess I was muted. I strongly agree with the idea that uh, scale focuses. It, it, I almost feel like it sets me free. So you stop down a little, you figure out the range you're shooting at, and you don't have to think about focusing. And it's very easy to waste all your time and energy fiddling with an SLR or a rangefinder or whatever, trying to get that focus perfect, when what you really should be doing is watching the action and figuring out when to press the shutter. And a scale focus camera just sets you free from that. <laughs> you get your range, you set it, and then you just look for the picture. And it, it's one less like distraction. Now, there's you, nothing stopping you from scale focusing a rangefinder camera, but Nick, exactly or an SLR. <laughs> but but here, here's my thing though. Do you find though that it it's like sometimes when I'm watching a a, a movie and Netflix turns on the subtitles. I right. find myself yes. drawn to reading them. Like I can't yes. stop reading the subtitles. <laughs> right. So if, if I'm trying to scale focus a rangefinder camera, I can't not look at the patch. That's what a hot shoe viewfinder is for. <laughs> <laughs> and you can put one of those on any camera. You can put one on your Hasselblad and like ignore yeah. the damn. Yeah. <laughs> or, use a, or use a Barnack. A Barnack, yeah. It's right. a viewfinder. Yep. Or, or a Zeiss Contacts 1. Or a crown graphic. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just stop the aperture down and not worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And and that's and that, that really is a freeing thing. I'd strongly recommend looking at the folders and they, they fit in your pocket. It's yeah. it's really a wonderful thing. And you, you get away from all that sort of familiar stuff. It actually can help you. I don't know, pay more attention to the pictures and less attention to the camera, which can be good. And if you find out that you end up loving six by six folders, in my opinion, I think Anthony will agree with me on this one. The, the creme de la creme of simple yet amazing six by six folders is the Foltlander Perkio 2. It um, has the magic. Yeah, that can't. Now, there are more advanced folders, um, but they're always bigger. They're always heavier. The Perkio is barely large. It's a six by six medium format camera, but they're barely larger than a, a Vito, which is a 35 millimeter camera. Um, the two 
has uh, an exposure counter, which is nice. You know, it's not necessary to have, but it's just nice to have. And, you know, anything Footlander makes, it's like a retina. You know, they, they always have good lenses. It always That's, squeezes out is... 13 exposures out of a yeah. roll. Yeah. Extra, you got an extra exposure for every roll. That's my you, favorite camera. Yeah. It, it, it has <laughs> the best formulation go. of that color scope R lens. I've got, I probably have 15 uh, Voigtlanders that have color scope R's. And that is the one that's got the pixie dust. I don't know what they did on that formulation or the the, the, the build over that years, uh, but the Procaro two with the with the color scope R is pretty special. Yeah, and and even I mean I've got the the, the one here just to give uh, Michael a sense of scale. I mean, you, you can yeah you know, if you look at the the six by six as compared to the probably hold them the right way around, um, you can see the scale of size. I mean this thing mm-hmm. is tiny. It, it it literally just fits in your pocket once you once you actually fold it away. Now this is the the one without the rangefinder, the Pucal two. If I no, the correctly. two the two does not have a rangefinder. Oh, um, so that's scale focus as well. It's scale focus as well. It just adds the automatic film counter um, and maybe one other thing. I don't I don't have it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the winder, uh, the, me- the winding mechanism. The mechanism, yeah, yeah. So right. you set the you set the first frame. It's, it's sort of like the Super Iconto. You set the first frame. And then it just automatically just winds to the next uh, exposure. So Nick is holding up. Uh, is that a Perkio and a Bessa? You're on mute, Nick. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, so yeah, so this is a 35 millimeter rangefinder camera, which is basically bigger than yeah the Perkio six by six. Well, it's we'll just take, crazy. We'll take a screen grab of that so people listening can see it. But yeah, he's he's literally holding up a 35 millimeter rangefinder camera. That's the a little bit bigger, but basically the exact same size as a medium format camera. When you when you compare the actual size of the image you get from it, it, it is fantastic. It's funny we all have a Perkio here, except for Michael, of course. <laughs> I'm probably going to have to get one now because yeah. it sounds really interesting. <laughs> they and- really are good. You will pay a little more for one of them though than like a Speedax. So, but but, I, but they're I'll- under the radar. They're not as expensive, you know. Yeah, as, as you might expect. No, and, and they, maybe, they, maybe they, 120 yeah. bucks. And. It- the the nice thing about the their their coated lens from the fifties like they really are pretty near perfect but they're simple they they didn't get overcomplicated. M- Michael, you might have said this at the beginning. I'm sorry, but where are you located? I'm in Ohio, Southern in Ohio. Ohio. Um, oh, okay, kind of in between Cincinnati and Portsmouth. Oh, all right. Well, then we we need to hook up with Paul. Paul Reibolt is in that same area. He'll find something yep. for you. Oh yeah, he's over in Yellow Springs. Oh, okay, close yeah, I know. I know where that is. Um, I'm actually wanting to go up there sometime soon, take the kids. There's an old mill up there that's like one of the top places to photograph in Ohio. It's kind of cliched, but um, yeah. It, well, I've what, tried mo- most of the Zeiss and some of the other folders, and it, nothing ever is as nice as the, fo- the Foatlanders. They're really, they're really special. And I think it's, it is the oldest camera company in, in existence. Yep. Like, Well, they're not in existence anymore, but they were – the first people to make cameras. Yeah. They date the back. They date back to the 1700s. They made like opera glasses and eyeglasses and such. And I'm, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy to hear you pronounce it like I do with an F. Fotlander. Yeah, uh, I, I, I like pronouncing things as they are meant to be pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lenses is the Septon. I love the Septon. There you go. And I had a color scope RX that came off of one of the decal mount Voigtlanders and. 
it had the aperture blade stuck and I thought, Oh, I'll try to open it up and, and fix it. Nope. I run down. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I've broken a lot of lenses trying to fix them. It's just, you know, how you learn. I can't believe it. I pulled up uh, eBay right now and there is not a single Perkyo two for sale anywhere in the world right now. That surprises oh, me. Great. <laughs> there's a couple ones, which, and there's nothing wrong with the ones either. Honestly, the, the film stop oh, feature are, is, is, is more likely to break. Actually, I, ha- I have a, a, the uh, baby Bessa from 1936 that um, belonged to my great uncle. And even that's a great camera. Like you don't have to get, even the ones that are really old are still exceptional. It, that has a triplet, but it's one of those amazing 3D pop triplets that everything that you, again, everything you take with it is good. It's, there is some magic in those cameras. There really is. There's a one for sale for 70 bucks, but he says the linkage between the shutter release on the top plate and the shutter is busted. I wouldn't touch that. Well, th- but you don't need that button. You don't you need shoot, it. You could, for, you could shoot by directly fondling the lens. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. I would completely rule it out. Yeah. Cable release. Yeah. Yeah. You can figure that out. I'll, I'll actually uh, show you a folder. It's not quite in that for the price range. It's a little bit more, but it's one of the, it's got the favorite top. It's got a top on it. That is probably one of my favorite looking cameras. Um, yeah. It looks like a regular folder from the front, but when you actually hold it up, um, oh, the, the pearl! Top, it's the, nice. The Konica pearl. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is the Konica pearl too. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, that you know that little um, area at the top there, which gives you the distance, the the the, the actual yeah um, distance you're focusing to. It's just beautiful. It's just a great little camera. Again, folds in your pocket. This shoots six by four five, and uh, it's. I haven't actually shot with this one yet, but it is. Yeah, one of my favorite cameras to look at at the moment. So I need to get it out there and, and, and shoot it. The, the Leotex, the Leotex Semi R is uh, contemporaneous with that, and it's also just a ton of right. fun. But it has a, an uncoupled rangefinder on it as well, which is kind of fun to have. You know, I actually have Carl's Pearl too. He he bought it this pristine copy, and he shot like two rolls f- with it, and. Um, he was so embarrassed because he, he was going to loan it to me and he was like, I saw him parking outside and he yeah, opened, up his, story. opened up his car door <laughs> and he fumbled and dropped it on the pavement right on the top plate and smashed his pearl. Uh, and he just came in and he's like, here's my pearl for you to borrow. <laughs> <laughs> Are there and any he, folders to watch out for? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. Are there any like folders that you want to stay away from? Uh, I've been disappointed by some of the Zeiss. You know, everyone loves Zeiss as a as a as a company, and they make beautiful things. But I've bought one or two of their folders that I really wasn't that excited about. Um, so I wouldn't pay a lot for one personally. I would look for bargains and then see how you feel about it. Yeah. Have, have you found them um, the insides and the back the paint peels, Nick? Um, that's what I found with a couple of Zeiss ones. I've been disappointed in the optics, actually, which is stupid because most Zeiss optics are fantastic. Uh, I mean, they have great film transport. They hold the film really flat. Like, they're technically really well thought out cameras. They tend to be well made. Um, and there are some good ones. But I've I've had a few that I just was like, yeah, 
so what? Who cares? I'm, I'm kind of bored. Whereas something like a B2 Speedex is a cheaper camera. You generally have to replace the bellows, but there's a character that it has that makes you want to use it, you know? And I've been kind of bored with uh, several of the Zeiss that I've, that I've used. I would say, it, and, and this hurts me to say, but stay away from folding, folding Kodaks. Um, yeah, exactly yeah. what I was going to say. <laughs> they they yeah. almost never have good bellows. I mean, yeah. it is incredibly rare to get any folding, except the Retina. But that's that's a German camera, though. So excluding right. the Retina, right? Um, or any Nagel camera for that matter. But any of the mid-century, you know, pre-war, early post-war Kodak folders will always have Swiss cheese bellows. And if by the grace of God you find one that doesn't. The second you close it and open it again, holes will appear. Um, yeah, and that's kind of true of Agfa too. And but on but the thing is, yeah. they have really. But those are nice, simple cameras with good lenses. So yeah, it's worth replacing the bellows. And I replaced the bellows on mine. Uh, I paid I don't know, not that much money for a nice pair of bellows from a, a guy I know in England, and I glued them in myself, and it works great. So that's worth doing. But then the camera was only like. $20. So, you know, it was yeah. worth it. Uh, yeah. A lot of those Kodaks, they're, they're riveted on or welded on the bellows. They're usually they're really, riveted. And they're difficult to, to change the bellows on. I've, I've talked to a number of people about swapping that out. because so I've got a monitor with the, with the nice, the Stigmat lens and uh, nobody wants to touch swapping out bellows on that camera. Right. But the Agfa, that's just rubber cement. It's not that hard. Yeah. yeah. And then I'll, I'll contradict myself a little with my praise for the Perkio, but if, if you're looking for a camera that's going to work, the most common feature that's going to cause you problems is the top plate shutter release. Yeah. Because um, all folders, at least that kind, have a leaf shutter where the shutter release is on the leaf. But when you fold it, the leaf shutter has to move. So therefore, so does the linkage. And mm -hmm. that linkage can just very easily get jammed. Um, in fact, I would, I would go as far as to say uh, you get like an SLR, a lot. We were talking about the Nikon F3 a couple episodes back, and I said the ones that show more wear are more likely to work because it means they've been used. The opposite is true with folders. If you see a yeah. folder that looks heavily worn, it is highly likely to have problems, right? Um, because a combination of that linkage just wears out, or you know, if you open it up and you don't shut it correctly, you know, some ham-fisted person, you know, you got to remember these things are half to three quarters of a century old. So how many times has it been sitting on a shelf and somebody picks it up and jams it shut and bends something? You could break the linkage. A lot of times, you know, that that shutter needs to be perfectly parallel with the film plane. And if it's not, if it's cockeyed even a little bit, your focus is going to be way off. So stay away from cameras that show heavy use, look wore out. Um, unfortunately, Kodak folders, you know, Agfa folders sometimes have very commonly rotted out bellows. Um, but like anything by Folklander, I'll, I'll disagree with Nick in the sense that I've never seen as bad Zeiss lens. Uh, but I, I'm sure they're out oh, there. Oh, I've, I uh, know. I'm not saying bad, boring. <laughs> boring. Okay. okay. And, and I have Zeiss lenses that are wonderful, yeah. for instance, on an Icoflex, but I don't know. I'm just, I've had two or three yeah. of their folders that they weren't nothing wrong with them. They just weren't yeah. that exciting. You know, that's all. So start, start with basic. I, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to my original recommendation the the speed X, yeah. uh, the Isolet, which everything from that era, almost every camera made by Agfa was also made by Ansco and they just, they're sold under different names, but it's the same camera. So Isolet, yeah. 
They merged in the thirties, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So those are, that is a great starting point. And if you really like that, get a more advanced folder, maybe try a TLR. Um, There were, there was a billion good Roloflex Japanese copies that are all great. And they're far cheaper than the real thing. Um, Yeah. And they they have the advantage of they they focus by moving the whole lens instead of by turning the front element. Yeah, that's actually a huge advantage, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of times the TLR seems like a much better camera. And I think the key difference is that it's that it's focusing by moving the entire lens. And for a lot of those early lenses, that's a, just a better way to do it. Whereas the folders often use front element focusing, which isn't always the best. Theo, you were talking last week uh, about the Helena. TLR, right? Yes. And it's yes. got it's got the gears that wrap around both the two lenses. There's um Argus had um a camera the 75 or no the Argoflex, the the Kodak Reflex 1 and 2 have that. And if if you're wondering when you see a TLR where the two lenses are geared together, yeah, he's showing a picture of one. What's one thing that's really great about that design is that it is really, really hard unless you physically damage them for the the two lenses to become out of sync. Whereas on like a Roloflex, I don't have one with an arm, arm's reach. You know, the entire front of the camera moves forward and backwards on a gear, and if you if you drop it or it takes a good bump, you can throw that out of alignment. Whereas the TLRs that have gears around both lenses will almost always be true. Um, and they almost always sell for less too, because they're, they're usually less desirable models. Oh, I've got a TLR recommendation for Michael, because if you decide that you want to try a TLR you know TLRs can be ghastly expensive. Like if you want to get into like a roller flex, they can be you know, 700 or a thousand dollars. There was a Czech camera from the 1960s called the Flexorette, and you can get a Flexorette seven for around a hundred dollars. And it's, 90% of what you're going to get out of people are going to hate me for saying this, but it's like 90% of what you get out of a Roloflex for a hundred bucks. And if you just want, if you're like not sure about getting into TLR, uh, you want to like test the waters. Um, that's a great way to go. I mean, you know, Yashica's there's a range of them. I know that Mike's a big fan of the Yashica D. Um, I've got a 124, uh, but that Flexorette for a hundred bucks, I think is, for a camera that if you just like, you're not sure if you want to get into the TLR, it's a different kind of shooting experience. Um, it's a good way to test the waters. I That's a really good point. And another one is an Icoflex. So the Zeiss Icoflex are pretty affordable compared to a Roloflex. Yeah. And there's a little more fiddling that goes on. But I'll tell you what, um, I have a Roloflex just because someone gave me one. I didn't have to pay for it. And I like this Icoflex just as much, which I bought at a flea market for 70 bucks. And so, you know, yeah, I completely agree with that. You might end up loving them and you might end up wanting like the best one of all, but these are just as good in terms of the images that come out of them. So this is cool. uh, episode 10, uh, Michael. We're gonna, we'll give you a couple weeks, maybe like episode 12 or 13. We're going to demand to see your bank statement. To see to see how much money you've spent. <laughs> I didn't long, have how, gas how before long, I got on here. <laughs> how long do you think before Michael gets into the panoramics? Oh, we did it again. <laughs> well, that's something I was going to ask. Is uh, I've what, what, the panoramic that used thirty-five millimeter film. What's the easiest way to get into that? Save your money. 
<laughs> oh, that that guy up in Canada is making some really nice ones. Um, he he takes various thirty-five millimeter cameras and cuts them in half and puts a medium format lens on them, and he's making some really nice cameras. And they're not that expensive for what you get. Um, so it's like a you know a cheap version of a panorama of a X pan. It's not like a Lomo sprocket, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. These are really nice. He takes something like a Nikon. They usually use like FMs or FM10s. I think yeah, and he, and he cuts the whole front out of it yeah. and puts a big film gate in it and sticks something like a, a 50 millimeter Mamiya press lens on it. And they're really an elegant solution. I, you know, they cost a few hundred dollars, but yeah. for what you get, they're amazing. Yeah. What, what do you guys think of the FT2? I just saw someone shooting I, one on the weekend. I have one, and I will tell you that th- that is the second. The Kemper Combi is first, but the FT2 is the second most convoluted, frustrating, pain in the ass camera to load <laughs> I have ever used. I, I, I I'm not even going to go grab it. Um, but it uses regular 35 millimeter film, but it does not use 35 millimeter cassettes. So, first of all, you have to load. Well, okay, double first of all, you have to find an FT2 with both cassettes. You have to have two cassettes in them. If you only have one, you can't use it. Um, but assuming you find one with both cassettes, the cassettes break down into three pieces. There's an internal sleeve and then caps on each side. And you have to open these things up, thread your film into there, like bulk film, or you could take like a regular 24, 36 cassette, but you got to cut it out because you can't use a regular cassette. So you have to you have to hand feed in the film, tape it to the internal spool. You have to slide the spool into a sleeve, put the two caps on. Then you have to shove this thing into the camera, and, and it, the orientation that it goes in it must be observed because if you put it in backwards, it won't work. And then you have to wrap it around a gear, around the curved fill plane, another gear, and then you have to do the same thing on the other side for the take-up side. And then, assuming you get all this thing in there at once, you have to slide, um, you have to slide it all back together and put the back on. And it's just, it's you gotta do it in the dark. Cause remember, you're using bulk film. So I, I, I've, I shot my FT2 once thinking, you know, oh, this is a cool camera. It, it, Cause it, it looks really, really neat. But um, I'll just, I'll go back with Anthony and say that the Horizon is definitely the, it's the economical choice. It's not that hard to load. Um, you still need to kind of snake it through. There's a, there's a, a, a schematic on the inside of the door um, that you have to follow. But it, it, it's, it is the FT2. I don't know. Someone's probably going to say, oh, well, you need to use the Tokarev method. But I, I'll tell you, it, it was not fun. It is frustrating. Uh. I was actually quite impressed with that until um, until uh, Bill, the guy who was using it, was showing me on the top, even the controls. Basically, you set the aperture and the speed depending on where particular knobs are pointing, but they're, they're not labeled. They're actually, there's a label to the side. So yeah. you're actually trying to work so, all that out. So the, the Horizon, I talk about this in my review. Um, the Horizon, the shutter movement is at the same speed, no matter what. How you get different speeds on the Horizon is there's a slit. So the slow speed is the slit is actually just wider open. So as it swings around, it's letting in more light. As you go to the faster speeds, the shutter never actually changes speed. It is always the same speed. It's just that that slit gets closer and closer together. 
you know, kind of like a focal plane shutter, you know, where the curtains at, at one one thousandth are like a sliver, but they widen up the faster you go. It's the same concept. The FT2, however, is different in the sense that the, the spinning mechanism of the shutter starts off at, I think, one four hundredth. And then there's these two levers on the top and each of the levers control a brake. So there's like a medium brake and a high brake. And depending on which combination of brakes you're using, as the shutter swings around, the brakes slow it down. So you actually are changing the speed of the movement in the camera. Like you can actually feel it. When you fire the FT2 without the brakes, it actually kind of like jerks in your hand a little bit because it's got a lot of inertia. But when you set those brakes, it slows it down. Um, And it, it does work pretty good, but... As the camera gets older and is used more, like any brake, it wears out. Um, it, it is affected by temperature. So, like, you know, if you're in, you know, up shooting in a gulag in Siberia or something, you're, you're going to have wildly different speeds than if you were shooting the same camera in a warm area. So there is there is a lot. I mean, the FT2 is, I, I, I will have a review of it someday. Um, but the, the thing that's slowing me down on it is after shooting it once, I don't want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to ship it off to Vlad and have him load it for me and send it back. <laughs> but I don't even think he'd he'd do that for me. But yeah. I don't know if we answered Michael's question. Um, I, I would say if you want to play with um, panorama, aside from there's a Lomo camera. I think you mentioned that can do it. But if you want something good, you know, look for a Horizon. You're gonna want to make sure you get one that does work. Um, you know, I picked up. Why well, I, I failed at using Anthony's, but I picked up a second one that had a completely different issue. And, you know, they, they, they are susceptible to a lot of problems just because, you know, you're talking about, once again, a 50 to 60 year old Soviet camera that's using a, a large swinging motion. You know, there's, you know, anytime you have moving parts, it can throw you off. But, um, you know, you, you could find a, a Horizon, you know, service for 150, 200 bucks if you look. And they're cool looking. So there's not there's nothing cooler than a swing lens camera. I, yeah. I think you're on the right track with that. But there is another way to go, and it, it gets you into your into your medium format. So this is an RB67 uh, back. So this will fit on any two and a quarter by three and a quarter graph lock back camera. And I used a forty dollar conversion kit from Mercury Camera to turn it into an X-Pan format thirty five millimeter uh, film holder. And so you get this long, narrow format. The only disadvantage of it is that when you're done shooting, you have to unload the film in a dark bag. So, yeah. you know, but you, no get, way to rewind, but you get, right? there's no way to rewind, but you get yeah. a, quite a few shots um, and it works really well. And then you can put it on something like this. And here's another way to get into medium format. This is a, the most inexpensive and kind of wonderful of the Graflex cameras. It's called a Century Graphic. It's a two and a quarter by three and a quarter uh, graph lock back camera with ground glass, range finder, viewfinder, you know, bellows focusing, lens boards, all that stuff. And they're generally around about a hundred bucks. And they're, and they're also made of this indestructible ancient plastic with the wonderful name of uh, mahoganite. <laughs> mahoganite. <laughs> and it's, it's a really underappreciated camera. Um, a lot of times you can put pretty fast lenses on it 
um, I've got, you know, 2.8 lenses that I use on it and you can focus it, but the ground glass just handheld without a dark cloth, just looking into the uh, back of it. So they're actually a really nice camera and it gives you a lot of different ways of shooting. You can treat it like a folder. You can treat it like a large format, you know, camera. You can do all this different kind of stuff with just one really simple and it does fold up pretty small. So that's another great way to get into medium format that lets you sort of try a little bit of everything with one camera. And then you have interchangeable film backs. So you can shoot six by nine, six by seven, six by six, or panoramic with a little kit like this. So actually, I, I think, what's that? What was the camera called again? It's the Century Graphic. And in the people that made Crown Graphics and Speed Graphics and all that, this was like their, their the sort of amateur one. camera, yeah. you know? It's a, and it's two and a quarter by three and a quarter graph lock, which just happens to accept things like the RB67 backs. They just go right on it. So you can get really high quality film backs for this. And all the formats, um, even six, four, five. Wow. And it's, it gives you the choice of ground glass, rangefinder, or scale focusing all in one camera. So they're pretty great. The one thing about them is as, as this style of camera goes, the lens boards are very small. So you're going you're gonna to be using small lenses. It, you can't use jumbo large format lenses with it. But you can get all the way up to, um, you know, I mean, definitely almost anything in a uh, Copal Zero shutter will fit on it. So it's, it's a pretty good, good way to start into medium format. Mm -hmm. Mike, that? Not, not that I'm looking at eBay or not. But uh, <laughs> I <don't laughs> check on the name. <laughs> Century Graphic, made of plastic. Yeah, Mike, got it. <laughs> Mike do, you have, do you have that lens that you showed me earlier by text that was on the small lens board? Is that for the Century Oh, graphic? yeah. I, I flushed it. Let me go grab it. I'll be right back. So a good example of what you can do is like all the Mamiya Press lenses are huge because they're in a, uh, a giant uh, helicoid. But... If you just take the shutter and lens off and stick it in a lens board, you can put it right on one of these and it, and it's great. So I have a 90 millimeter, you know, Mamiya press lens, but without the giant helicoid, I'm using it on the Sentry graphic and it's, it's great. Uh, because and I'm looking for an ideal camera to, with a graph lock back to add the new, uh, I'm thinking of getting the Lomo. Okay. Uh, okay. That won't fit on this. Wide this, inspect. Is, this is a smaller graph lock. This is two and a quarter by three and a quarter graph lock. It's right, medium okay. format. You need the four by five for the Lomo. And I have it and I've been using it. And if you want to know something about it, I think it works great, but it's an awfully small print. Like, yeah. you know, there you are going through all the trouble of using large format and you get a relatively small print. Now I'm not going to say yet whether I like it or don't like it because I haven't used it enough. And I will say it works very well. Um, but you do need a big four by, four by five. I've also heard that it puts a lot of tension on the springs. Um, a few people have mentioned that it, it's, it's not the back out. Okay, so don't put the back under the spring. It's a graph lock. The actual, uh, inst the actual thing that has the Instax film in it is not yep. meant to go under the spring back. There's a ah. spacer that you use for focusing, and that's fine. But do not jam the whole big fat Instax back behind your spring back. Take the spring back off, and it fits the graph lock back. So okay. it has slots for the graph lock connectors. It, and it's really designed for those press cameras. Like, if you have a graph lock only camera, then you're going to have to tape your ground glass onto the spacer and, you right. know, Rube Goldberg thing. 
it really works with the press cameras. It's not really designed for some of the other options. Right. And if people are jamming it under the spring, they're going to break it. Yeah, that's not good. You don't want to do that. (laughs) So I I got this in a a lot of things. Um, Just use rubber bands. (laughs) (laughs) Bungee cord it. Right. (laughs) Um, Just it's showing my ignorance on, on the style of camera though, but I, I got a lens. It's on a lens board. It's on a square piece of, yeah, that's, that's an earlier, that's not a pacemaker Graflex. That's an earlier uh, Graflex camera. Graflex, okay. So because it because, has a, go ahead. Yeah, the, the board design, the pacemaker cameras are the more advanced, newer ones. And their boards are a rect or a square or almost a square that is made of aluminum and has a return like edge on it. The older cameras, it's like a solid chunk. that's all one thickness everywhere. And... So it's for an earlier uh, camera. So this has a, a, a Zeiss Tessar on it, and the serial number dates it to 1938. So yeah, you know, right. You're, so That's what? Before, yeah. How would I know though? Like you said, it's older. Like what would I look for if I wanted to find a camera that this would work with? It's just before the pacemaker graphics. Okay. All right. Anything before pacemaker, it'll fit on. Okay. Um, and the pacemakers came in in the early 50s. I got and, you. And it's a different design of lens board. Okay. Um, and I have a speed graphic that that would go on that I'm not doing anything with. So, you know, I'm sure we could that's come That's actually an interesting size because that's very <laughs> similar to the, um, the Bush Pressman D size, which that's, that's the one fault of that 4x5 camera, that the, the actual lens board is actually quite small and the throat of the camera is quite small. I think this and is even smaller. That looks to me like a, a baby graphic. What's the right. measurement? What's the measurement of that? The lens? No, the board. Oh, um, I don't know. If I eyeball it, it's about an inch and a half by inch and a half. I mean, it's yeah, that's just... that's from a baby a baby right. graphic. So that's from a medium format Graflex. I mean, you can see it's barely larger than the, the shutter itself. Yeah, right. No, that's a baby. That's a baby. That's a medium format camera. Right. Okay. Right. Not a four by five. All right. Neat. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. I have got most of the sizes, but I stick with the pacemakers because they're more versatile. We uh, we um sorry. I picked up this lot that Anthony had mentioned um, last week's episode, and, and it had a bunch of old Zeiss lenses, some contacts, mount, sonars. I have a 1.5, two F2s, this thing. I got some enlarging lenses on it. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this stuff. So, you know, just being able to find what this could be used for, you know, helps um, to be able to identify it. Yeah. Yeah. So the the um the the secret bargain of Graflex cameras are the three by four. So the medium format two and a quarter by three and a quarter was common, and then the four by five was very common. But they used to make a three and a quarter by four and a quarter format Graflex camera, and they made a lot of them. But they don't make film anymore. There's one place in China that makes one black and white film for them. But their 20th century camera makes a an adapter that you can screw on the back right into the same screw holes that'll switch the rear end of it to four by five, which means that you can shoot four by five film and you'll only get the three by four part of the frame, but that's still a big image. Um, the other thing though you can do is just use roll film holders on it and shoot 120 film with it. And they're kind of uh, kind of a, a sort of a secret thing because people buy them by mistake. They don't know what to do with them. They can't get the film. So they go for cheap. And but they're actually usually quite high quality cameras in good condition. They haven't been used in a long time because they haven't made the film in a long time, and so 
they're something to look out for and you can just convert them to a four by five back and then use roll film and, and uh four by five film with them. Oh, wow. That, that's uh and they're, they're quite a bit bigger than the, the baby graphics. So you've got a nice long bellows and you know, what's that? What are, what's Mike got? You're muted. Mike, Mike's Johnny, muted. Johnny gave this to me, but he gave it to me like this. And it's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? It's a, it's a Calumet. <laughs> it's, it's a monstrosity. It's a monorail. It's a monorail. Yeah, it's a monorail. Um, yeah, Calumet camera four by five. That's just, a great thing. You just street, need a right? tripod there. That's all. Well, I need a tripod. I need a back. I need a lens. <laughs> I need basically well, everything. Well, show I me the back. Frame. Show me the back. That's probably just a four by five graph lock back. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's a spring back, but you can use uh, four by five holders. And there are roll film holders that will work with that. You know, made by Calumet, as a matter of fact. Okay. Have you seen those? No, I. This is completely out. Of, like he gave All right. me this. So case. there's a roll film holder that is designed to slide under a spring back, and the film is all off to the side. I can show you one. Nick's going to get some uh, some more gear. <laughs> From the size of that, that looks like something that would stabilize you. That you don't need any. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's heavy. It, this is not like light that's, that's without a lens or a back on it. Yeah, this is the case. I mean, it comes in a huge like like he gave this to me. It's, what the hell's in the box? You know, he's like, I don't want it. Just, just take it. Okay, so there's a roll film holder. No, oh, I've designed seen those. to slide in just the way a sheet film holder does. And then the film both take up and, you know, on the side reels are all over here off to the side. Now I'm interested. And so any old spring back camera that won't take graph lock roll film holders, you can use this with. And And that's what I have with my Bush Pressman. So that would, yeah, there you go. So Calumet made these, they work fine. And, uh, you can go, this one's a six by seven. They make six by nine. They make all the different sizes. I don't know about six, four, five, but they make the normal sizes and oh, wow. they work great. And it's kind of nice because you, it's actually simpler than messing with a graph lock. Yeah. You just pull out the, you just focus and shove it in, take the picture, you know, it's simple. Yeah. I've got a, a World War II speed graphic as well, which, yeah, um, right. which also would fall. A four pacemaker. Yeah. 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 Well, that there's a roll film holder for it, and Calumet made it, and it'll also work on that Calumet. And a lot of the old large format cameras have those spring backs and come that way. The, you know, the the whole the whole. Are they hard uh, to get hold of those those. No, no, you, they're on eBay as a general rule. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, and they're often in good shape because people stopped using the cameras a long time ago. So <laughs> the roll film holders have just been sitting in someone's closet. Anthony has something to show us. Yeah, this is the uh, roll film holder for my uh, super graphic. Oh, yeah. And that's a uh, uh, graph flock type. Yep. That's cool. That's actually a made by Graphlex. Yep. And which one is it? Square it's or the, is it six by seven? Uh, six by seven. Yeah. Yep. And it's, uh, yeah, 23 graphic. Um, no, it's a six by nine. Yeah. It's yeah, they made all the it's, sizes. It's, it's, uh, yeah, because it, it's eight exposure, so six by nine. Yeah, and it just it just snaps right in under the springs, uh, just like you would put a, a film holder in. Well, that works with a graph lock back. Um, yeah. The weird one I was holding up works with the old spring backs, so you have both options. But it works great. I mean, you got a beautiful six by nine out of it. Um, yep. 
and it's nice because the the super graphic actually has a decent rangefinder on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, because at first I was like, oh, I should, you know, slide it off and use the ground glass for every shot. And I was like, no, I don't need to do that. I can actually. Yeah, I I do that because my super graphic has a broken rangefinder, so uh, I use the ground glass. The other thing about all of those graphics is you've got a monkey with it if you change lenses, and you know. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to bother with that readjusting things. <laughs> so, so Michael did, um, did we answer the questions you hoped would, would get answered when you joined? Yeah, I think so. I'm all, I think I'm leaning to the folders. If the, if there's a, you know, the, an end of the Voigtlander supply shortage, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but they're all worth trying. Any of them are worth trying. Yeah, I'm seeing all this yeah. complicated, uh, large format stuff. And now I'm yeah. like, ooh, starting to scare me off now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's not as complicated as it sounds. It really isn't. Well, just remember what I said at the beginning, though. There's so many ways to do this, and none of them are wrong. You know, some people exclusively do large formats. Some people only do medium. Some people only do pinhole photography. I mean, everybody has their own niche. You know, it's it's like any kind of art form. Find what works for you. You know, I I review cameras, so I'm shooting everything. And I, I'll be honest with you, I I have not shot a single large format camera ever. So that that's just one area I just know that I haven't you know yet been ready to to jump into, but I will someday, you know. Yeah. And and and, and I'm sure it's going to be fun, you know. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little slow. There's actually nothing different about it. Yeah. It's just more stuff to do. That's all. Yeah. 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 And for some people, that's uh, appealing. Yeah. Um. Go ahead. I said I'm picturing carrying one of those. Some of the places I go. <laughs> Well, the Sentry gra- graphic doesn't weigh any more than a Hasselblad, and probably less because the lenses are teeny tiny. Well, I have the Hasselblad right here, and <laughs> I have a kitchen scale right here. All right, all right. It's amazing I'll... the crap I have within arm's reach of, of a formula. <laughs> but here, I'm going to weigh this thing. This uh, Now, this is with the uh, planar 80 millimeter in the back. It's 1431, 1,431 grams. Okay. So, does he have a scale, too? Yeah, I have a scale. Hold on a sec. Uh, what do we got here? Unit. Uh, probably this one. Okay. I feel like I'm not prepared now. I don't have a scale next yeah. to me. <laughs> Everybody so has I'm at 1.5 kilograms, it looks like. So 1,500. So That's pretty close, though. I'm pretty so close. And the difference is that mine has a teeny weeny lens. <laughs> Really yeah. teeny weeny lens, and yours has a big fat lens, and that now is the I, difference. Now, if I take this off, though, the the weight drops substantially. Oh, wait, I got to cock it. You got to follow all the rules of the hassle. Yeah, but if you take the lens off, it's useless. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I have a whole section in my Hasselblad review of how to take the lens off and how to put it back on because I'm sure Anthony remembers with Hasselblad, you have to do everything their way. You can't I just just do not get along with Hasselblad. Yeah. Once I learned how to do it, it wasn't too bad. And now we weigh the B2 Speedex, and it's 630 grams. Yeah. You know, it's nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think fo- you're right, Michael. Start with a folder because you'll get the beautiful big negatives, and you'll have a very simple camera that's easy to work with, and then you can always make things more complicated if you want to. So it took us an hour and a half, but we finally came with a recommendation for Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's a, I think a good point to stop the show. Um, I want to thank uh, Nick again. You've been on the show before. Uh, Michael, do you have a website or anything you want to share? Uh, just mainly a Flickr page. I, I'm just selling things locally to people around here. So um, 
not really i don't really have much of an internet presence <laughs> okay we can include a link if you like in the show notes or not um but again just you know i hope you guys enjoyed your time here uh anthony or theo did you have anything you wanted to throw in before we go no, no, I think we'll hold over the purchases to next show. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah we, we'll keep people on for too long. I, I jumped the gun <laughs> on this ice talk at the beginning, but uh, I appreciate you guys for joining us. And um, once again, I want to uh, see your your uh, your bank statement to see how much gas uh, you ended up with in a couple of weeks. We'll have him back on to see what he did. I'll have to look for folders. I don't know if I'm going to find one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is this won't air until Wednesday. So uh, you have two days. <laughs> and, and look in your local flea markets and thrift stores. Yeah. They, they turn up more often than you'd, you'd imagine. Yeah, you're, uh, in the, you're in the U.S. You should have no problem finding Ansco stuff. It's, it's fairly common. Uh, thank you, guys. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Mike. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, as always, it's always fascinating hearing your uh, spin on large format. You know, you do a lot of cool stuff that, like I said, I've never touched, but... Uh, it's always great having you on. Thank you. All right. You guys have a good night. Good night. Bye. Right, bye. I was just going to say, on a totally different tack before we jump off, I, um, I bought this on the weekend. Don't know if you've ever seen one of these before. I was going to pull one out. No, I don't. I don't have that one, but I have the higher end one, the tower, the forty-one. So oh yeah, yours yeah, is yeah. thirty. That, yours is the thirty-nine, right? Thirty-five. 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 Okay. Yeah, the automatic thirty-five. It's actually the Mamiya branded one. Okay. This thing. This thing's never been used. Look at. Look at this. I mean, you can see right through. Did not yeah. scratch on that glass at yeah. all. Yeah.